A new law enacted last month requires the Office of Management and Budget, in cooperation with federal agencies, to post their annual budget justification documents online and to maintain a downloadable data set. OMB and Treasury have a year to develop the standards and procedures. For how this might actually happen, we turn to a former federal chief financial officer, now the managing director for the public sector at Grant Thornton, Doug Crisitello. Doug, good to have you back. Great to be here, Tom. So this looks like another burden on whomever in federal agencies, the IT staff, the budget justification staff, whoever that is. So I imagine the program people, essentially, yet another launch of what looks like a new website for the government. It'll probably be called budgetjustification.gov. I don't know yet. But what would it take to pull all this together, both across a large department, uh, let alone across the government? Well, OMB would be the central coordinating agency for this information. And OMB already publishes a range of other budget documents on its website. So adding congressional justifications to that site should be fairly straightforward. Requiring this machine-readable format, the justifications in that format, to be posted or at least linked. I mean, it's not necessarily a website, a separate domain altogether. It should enable better analysis and understanding of the information that's captured in congressional budget justifications each year. And justifications, though, aren't those verbal, whereas the numbers are what might be in a spreadsheet or a database. Yeah, they can be. So the submission of budget justifications is accompanied by numerous formal and informal written and verbal interaction between agency and congressional officials. I mean, this is really where the sausage is sort of made, right? So hard to capture informal interactions in any coordinated way. But that said, I think there is something to be said for posting this data somewhere out there where it's readily searchable and usable. And how would it work in the case of just any given program that has two components? Say there are grants and dollars or benefits that are paid out. That's one part of the budget. But then there's the part of the budget for the staff and operations of that program. I'll make one up. For example, food stamps. There's billions of dollars for SNAP program. But then there's a whole apparatus that makes the SNAP program happen. You can repeat this across the government. So when agencies develop their budgets, do they have a separate discussion on how much should it be for the benefits or the grants or whatever it is, in addition to what it should be for the staff to operate it? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, we don't have our operational costs clearly linked to the programs that they support. You know, I have a friend who likes to say, we know the price of everything that the government does, but we know the cost of nothing because these programs require administrative resources to support their delivery, but there's not those clear linkages. So the way that the data is structured right now Generally, there's just amorphous administrative budgets and separately program dollars, and they're largely tracked and reported separately. Yeah, hopefully, we're headed toward a point where you know, we have a better sense as to what these programs cost to deliver. Well, I can see where that could get fuzzy you know, without anyone being at fault here. For example, say you take to return to agriculture department, and I know that wasn't your department, but say you have a technology staff at the department, and you know, one day they might be helping the SNAP program, 
They might also be helping, you know, the next day, I don't know, the Farm Service Administration with their IT needs or something. So it's hard to divide people across various program channels if they're a central service. Yeah, it is hard, but we have technology systems today that enable departments to be able to do that. So it's a question as to how seriously do we want to take that exercise, but it could be done. We're speaking with Doug Crisatello, Managing Director for the Public Sector at Grant Thornton. And in the preparation of budget justifications, I guess they're formally delivered by the secretary to OMB and by the OMB to the White House. I mean, not the White House is the OMB, but anyway, who actually participates in the preparation and approval of those documents? So I'm an ex-OMB earlier in my career. That's true. And at that organization, preparation of the president's budget takes precedence over everything else. Now, I've also worked at a couple of federal agencies in the budget shops. And when you get there, you understand that preparation and submission of congressional budget justifications is the most important activity that those offices undertake each year. So, look, when I was at OMB, and this still occurs, right, OMB reviews the congressional budget justifications But it's really just a review to ensure that it's consistent with the president's budget. It's not nearly as important to OMB as it is to the agencies. So that's an interesting sort of dynamic. And that, yeah, I I think from the OMB perspective, they want to make sure that all the information in the president's budget is posted and available for public inspection. But this would be something new if OMB suddenly had a significant role in coordinating or acting as a clearinghouse for justifications. So gathering the justifications within a given department or agency then that would come under, do you think, the financial channel or who? I think OMB would probably, yeah, I I mean, I guess it would sort of fall to the management gurus at OMB to figure out exactly how this is going to be set up. I think OMB would probably just want a website where it was directing researchers or staff, whoever wanted this information, back to agency sites where these documents were retained. One thing that's tricky here, and this is something that, you know, you mentioned the um, burdens on IT shops, this data would need to be These aren't just PDFs that would be posted, right? So they would be required to be posted in structured data format, which is, you know, structured data as a researcher, it's a good thing, right? Structured data is born to be analyzed, but it takes some doing to take all of the numbers in a, think about it as a PDF and put them in a usable format where the data can be analyzed. Yeah, so this is a challenging thing they've developed to put in front of agencies. Maybe that's why OMB and Treasury have a year to develop the standards and procedures here, as we mentioned at the top. And then agencies have varied records with respect to documents that go back many years, like Exhibit 53s and so forth. If you go from agency to agency trying to find the latest, say, Exhibit 53, some places have them right out there. Some places they're five years old. Some places don't have them at all. And the same is true for the justifications, although the big departments all post their congressional budget justifications. But how easy, you know, open question about how easy it is to find how many do they post? Do they go back five years or 10 years? So it's sort of done in a haphazard way right now. So one of the upsides of this new law is that there would be a much more uniform approach to posting these documents. 
What about that provision that agencies have to account for and then post information on both obligated and unobligated funds, which they sometimes have at year end? Right. So the new law would require information on funds being made available. And that kind of information, what is an agency expended from its past funds? What does it still have available? That information will help inform congressional appropriators about budget execution at agencies, specifically where funding has been committed and spent, and to what extent are true unobligated balances available to be reallocated for other purposes. It's not always as simple. It's not always a binary choice between obligated dollars and unobligated. There's a path where funds move from unobligated status to obligated. That said, though, there are true unobligated balances at some agencies that could be repurposed. Doug Crisitello is Managing Director for the Public Sector at Grant Thornton and a former Federal Chief Financial Officer. As always, thanks so much. Great. Great to be here, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, It's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin and what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, 
situations changed and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters 
um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. The people who looked through 200 resumes to fill a job also waited 40 minutes for their internet to dial up. You don't wait 40 minutes for your internet to dial up. You use Upwork to quickly hire talent. This is how we work now. 